Let's open our Bibles to the ninth chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 9, where we'll take up this epistle to the Romans, written by our beloved brother Paul. Romans chapters 9 through 11 describe God's dealings with Israel and Gentiles, especially pertaining to the belief of the gospel that had been sent by the commission of Jesus Christ into all the world. Up until that time, the message of God and the truth of God had been restrained to the nation of Israel. The last two verses of Psalm 147 are two of the plainest statements in the Bible to that effect, that it was uh, Israel's prerogative and their blessing to have God's wisdom and word, and the rest of the nations did not. But the apostle in these three chapters, stuck sort of like a parenthetical chunk into the epistle of Romans, describes what is happening and transpiring as God moves the preaching of his gospel from Jews to Gentiles. I want to give you a brief outline and review. It was in the preparatory email of the ninth chapter. We're going to go do the same thing in the tenth chapter and take up the verses that we have before us for today. Romans chapter 9, in the first five verses is an introduction, a very wise salutation, as the apostle describes the great blessings that Israelites had, and in particular, elect Israelites. And he there expressed in the second verse that he had great heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart. The apostle would not have great heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart against the will of God in election. He is not grieving that not all of Israel was elect. He is grieving that elect Israel that had the necessary means provided were not believing the gospel. And he's going to be pursuing that thought through these three chapters. But that's the first five verses. It's his introduction, his wise opening to calm Jews, that he loved them greatly. His kinsmen, according to the flesh, were very important to him. But that there was something seriously wrong that was provoking him to great heaviness and continual sorrow. Now in the sixth verse, he states the doctrine. And that is an election had taken place in Israel. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. And he's going to go on and explain that. But the doctrine is stated in that sixth verse. And it's an important verse. The most important verse for the ninth chapter. After stating the doctrine that they are not all Israel. That are of Israel. Elect Israel is only a portion of the nation of Israel. God's Israel, His children, are only a remnant or a part or a fraction of the entire group of those that descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Having stated that there is an election and a reprobation in Israel, some chosen, others passed over, so that they are not all God's children that are Israelites or Jews, He then illustrates it from two examples in the lives of the patriarchs, verses 7 through 13. In verses 7 through 13, he deals with the children of Abraham, and then he deals with the two children of Isaac and Rebekah. And in both cases, he shows that one was chosen, the others passed over. One was loved, the other hated. So he illustrates the doctrine from verse 6 that was quite shocking to Jews who had assumed that by their national and natural pedigree, they were God's children. In verses 14 through 24, he proves his statement of doctrine by theology. 
Because he deals with, is God righteous in doing this? Is God's a potter? Look what God did with Pharaoh. Look what Moses said about God from the Old Testament. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. So he proves it from theology. And he comes down through verse 24. Then in verses 25 through 29, which are five verses, there are four quotations from the Old Testament. And so Paul proves his doctrine this time from their own scriptures that there had been an election in Israel because the prophets had foretold the thing. And they, they foretold it many more times than four as they described there being but a remnant saved out of Israel. Then, in verses 30 through 33, he describes the phenomenon that's taking place. And that is the Gentiles are believing the gospel at a more rapid pace than the Jews, which is shocking considering the Jews were God's people and the Gentiles were God's rejected ones on earth. That's Romans 9. I need to break down things to get them in their pieces so I see how it all fits together. Now I'm going to go over it again very fast. Verses 1 through 5 are a salutation and state the problem. There is something going on in Israel that caused an apostle consternation. He states the doctrine that not all of national Israel is God, are God's children or elect Israel in verse 6. He illustrates it by lives of the patriarchs. He proves it from theology. He proves it from scripture. And then he states and shows the dilemma. The Gentiles are believing it and they shouldn't be believing it. The Gentiles shouldn't be believing the message of God. The Gentiles are stone worshiping, tree worshiping, ignorant barbarians of the world in compared to the, in comparison to the Jews. And so that's Romans 9. Romans 10, verses 1 through 4, the apostle again expresses his desire and prayer to God for elect Israel that they might be saved. The proving that has already been done in previous sermons, and I'm not going to recover that ground. If you still think that the Israel in verse 1 is national Israel, you have such horrendous problems that uh, they're not, they can't be dealt with short of hours, and I wouldn't deal with them anyway. Because if you haven't figured it out yet by the preaching that's been done, you're so confused in Romans 9, 10, 11, you're not going to make any progress toward truth. Because the apostle is not fighting the will of God that he has stated as being the will of a potter from chapter 9 to in chapter 10 say that he doesn't like what's being done and that he's going to work against God to save those that God has purposed not to save. That's impossible. Verses 1 through 4 are his introduction and the statement again that he has a burden for elect Israel that he could bring them to gospel conversion. Now he's already shown in the last four verses of chapter 9 that the Gentiles are believing it faster than the Jews and he expresses his, his earnestness for elect Israel in verses 1 through 4 that he wants to save them from their false confidence in the law of Moses for their justification and righteous standing before God. In verse 5, he states the doctrine of justification under Moses, which is, the man that doeth these things shall live by them, keeping all, everything Moses commanded was necessary to obtain righteousness that way. And in verses 6 through 9, he describes the statement of, base, of justification based on faith. Verses 6 through 9, Jesus Christ has finished the work. All that is necessary to show the evidence that you're included in that work is to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead. 
That's the point he's making. He is talking about the simplicity of showing your justification under the New Testament is to believe on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Abraham believed the promise that he would have a multitudinous seed as numerous as the stars of heaven, and that was counted to him for righteousness. This is counted to us for righteousness when we believe on the Son of God. Verses 10 through 13 elaborate on verse 9 by stating that it is a universal proposition that Jews and Gentiles, both of them alike, the evidence is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he shows by quoting a couple of different scriptures in verse 11 and verse 13. There's no difference in verse 12 between the Jew and the Greek. The evidence, the initial evidence, the commencing evidence that you are justified by the finished work of Christ is to believe the record God's given of His Son and to call upon His name. And we looked at various aspects of that. No man can call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ without being born again first. Um, There are many that call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that shall not be saved because they're not calling upon Him in sincerity from a regenerate heart. We looked at various aspects of that. The apostle is not dealing with regeneration in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. He is dealing in the simplicity of how to get an elect Israelite saved from trusting the law of Moses. How do you get an elect Israelite saved from trusting the law of Moses? To believe that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, raised from the dead, and the full propitiation for sins. To believe on Him and to call upon His name that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. That's what those verses are there for. They're not there to tell anyone that praying a short sinner's prayer of confessing Jesus with your mouth and believing in your heart is going to get you born again. Born again isn't even in the passage. We're talking about getting elect Israelites who are born again converted. They need to trust in Christ instead of Moses. They need to trust in the cross rather than the altar of the temple. And now we come to verses 14 and 15 where the apostle explains what I have just described about the simplicity of the New Testament can't take place unless there's gospel preachers that God sends that communicate His Word so that people can hear the message of God's finished work through Jesus Christ and believe on Christ. That's 14 and 15. Verses 16 through 18 are the fact that the Jews were not believing it. The Jews were not obeying the gospel. Verse 17, which you hear so many times, really, in in its line of reasoning, belongs back up there with verses 14 and 15 because it's describing the process that God ordinarily uses, and that is that in order to call upon the name of the Son of God, you have to hear the gospel. In order to hear the gospel, there has to be a preacher. In order for someone to preach, he has to be sent, and so forth. He goes through this chain, and verse 17 is just restating that chain. So then faith cometh by hearing. That faith, it's called the righteousness which is of faith. How does faith get drawn forth from an elect Israelite or a Gentile? God has to send preachers. Those preachers have to obey the call. Those preachers have to preach the Word of God. You have to hear the Word of God. You have to believe what you hear. Then you have to call. And verse 17 is saying the same thing. So then, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Paul has interjected verse 16 to say they have not all obeyed the gospel. They. He's got a plural 
third party under consideration here that he's had in consideration from the first verse of chapter 9, and that is elect Israel, which he's restated in the first verse of chapter 10, and he's praying for elect Israel, that they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah say, Lord, saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? And I hope you read that in Isaiah 53 last evening. And verse 18 is similar, but I say, have they not heard? Is the issue of them not believing in verse 16 because they have not heard? Or is the issue of them not believing because there is another factor involved here? Are you all with me? I'm trying to look at this chapter and just see its pieces fit together. Why would he say of them in verse 16, they have not all obeyed the gospel? Why is that happening? And that is his concern. His concern is stated in the first few verses of chapter 9. His concern is stated in the first few verses of chapter 10. His concern was stated in the last few verses of 9, where he says the Gentiles are believing it faster. What is wrong? But they have not all obeyed the gospel. What is the issue? Verse 18 is restating that for us. What is the issue? Is the issue that they haven't heard it? Oh no, they've heard it. The chosen ministers that God chose in the beginning, His apostles, took that gospel everywhere. It was as widespread as the message that is preached by the sun, moon, and stars. Everywhere. And the apostle actually quotes from, or uses words from Psalm 19 to express that universal presentation of the gospel. Verse, so I want to come to verse 18. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, these Jews have heard. Yes, verily, and he is dealing with Jews. He started out with Jews by calling them Israel in verse 1, and he is going to refuel, re, he's going to refer to prophecies right now about Israel as being those that don't believe, because he's going to describe the Gentiles as being the ones that do believe. So the Gentiles are not in verse 18. It's the Jews that are in verse 18. Right. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, they had heard. Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, the preachers that God had chosen, and their words unto the ends of the world. And so we ended last Lord's Day by pointing out that there are numerous places in the Bible that tell us that by the ministry of the apostles, the Great Commission was fulfilled in one generation before Jesus ended the Jewish state by destroying Jerusalem, just as he had said in Matthew 24, 14, where he said, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness, then shall the end come. And that end was the end of the Jewish nation. That end was the end of the Jewish temple, which is the subject matter of Matthew chapter 24. But now we are here in this 18th verse. And the sound has gone into all the world, but they are not believing it. In fact, in verse 16, the apostle had said, Who hath believed our report? So few were believing it that it was staggering. The rhetorical question issued by Isaiah in Isaiah 53, Who hath believed our report? Very few had believed it. The event that the whole nation had looked forward to its entire existence of 1,500 years the event that had been prophesied in the Garden of Eden about the seed of the woman was here, was happening. He had demonstrated that he was the Son of God and no one was believing on him. 
he would say during his ministry, you can tell by a red sky in the morning that it's going to be bad weather, or a red sky at night it's going to be good weather, but you can't tell that your own Messiah is here. This was shocking. Who hath believed our report? And so what is being introduced is there is something supernatural taking place that would cause people that should be believing not to believe. It's God's blinding, and I want to talk about that for a moment with you. John, I mean, Romans chapter 11 is going to be nearly exclusively about God's blinding, but it's being introduced to us right now. Look at, uh, look with me at John chapter 12. While you hold your place at Romans 10, John chapter 12. Now I started off our worship this morning with Luke chapter 8 and verse 18. Take heed therefore how ye hear. For him that hath, to them shall be given. And to them that have not, shall be taken away even that which they think they have. Or which they, which seemeth to have. Which they seemeth to have. The truth that is exposed to you and the truth that is offered to you, if you neglect it, or if you reject it, God will take it away from you and leave you a blathering idiot. But the real, the real judgment is that while he leaves you a blathering idiot, you think you know the truth. That is deception. That is being blind. That is being blinded to where you think you see, but you don't see. Jesus described the Pharisees of his generation as being blind that way. You know, he came to open the eyes of the blind that they would see. When you neglect or reject truth that God gives, he takes that truth away. You don't know that it's disappeared. And if you didn't have much to begin with, he takes that away and leaves you with nothing, not even what you thought you had. But you don't know that. You don't look in the mirror and say, I am a blathering idiot by the judgment of God. You look in the mirror and say, I'm doing just fine the way things are right now. I'm doing just fine. I'm doing well. In fact, I'm better than those people over there at the Church of Greenville or anywhere else that they want to refer to. I see things clearer than they do. That's how it happens. It's happened throughout the Testament, so I'm going to give you a few examples of it right now. If you have truth offered to you, and you embrace it, and you love it, and you tell the Lord you are not worthy of it like Jacob did, and you beg Him for more, and you humble yourself before Him and say, I am but a little child, more will be given to you. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer in the kingdom of heaven. And I love that economic system. And I hope that all of you love it as well. It is by diligence and faithfulness and good ground hearers that they learn more. But for those that want to come in and neglect a message from the high king of heaven given to the lowest on earth, which is you and me, if you want to neglect that, then he righteously and I praise His glorious name, takes away from you any understanding that you even thought you had, but He doesn't give you the recognition that He did it. That is blinding. The Jews did not think they were blind. The Jews thought that to follow truth and obey God, they should kill Jesus of Nazareth. Do you know how blind that is? They were rabid about it. John chapter 12. This is a horrible warning to all of us about the gospel. The truth and wisdom of God's word, especially about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the beloved Son, 
of the Most High God. John 12, 37. But though He had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on Him. That the saying of Isaiah, that is Isaiah, the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? See, that's Romans 10. That's Isaiah 53. And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Why can't anyone see that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Messiah of God? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. That is Isaiah chapter 6. That's John telling you that I'm referring to Isaiah chapter 6 when in the days of King Isaiah, the, day, the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Isaiah chapter 6, and he was so impressed. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. The Lord said, who will go for us and whom shall I send? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. You would not believe. Half of all missionary conferences, I would say, probably use Isaiah chapter 6, but they never go past verse 8. Do you know what the rest of the chapter is about? But I've blinded everyone that you're going to preach to so that nobody will believe it. I wonder why they don't use that. If you look at the, if you look at the second half of Isaiah chapter 6, but I don't want to get off on that track this morning. I want to stay right here and point out to you that what Paul quoted in Romans chapter 10 and verse 16, John used right here in John chapter 12, who hath believed our report? And why haven't they? Why haven't they? I've just shown you the answer. Why haven't they? He hath blinded their eyes. He hath blinded their eyes. God's blinding of elect Israel, which Paul's going to deal with more in chapter 11, is a profound subject. This is the church of God. God is in the business of blinding or hardening various men, as the Scriptures tell us repeatedly. One of the worst judgments God can ever give you is to blind your eyes and blind your heart. It's a horrible judgment. You don't even know what's happened. You know, we tend to think when we're looking for God's judgment, and I believe I have done this pub- mentioned this recently publicly. I know I do it in private a lot because some of you come to me and say, why isn't this nation or why isn't this legislator or why isn't this person, why isn't this rebel, you know, crushed? Why hasn't lightning struck him? Well, there's judgment worse than lightning. Yeah. Listen, to have lightning cut you off before you can spend the rest of your life pursuing a lie is mercy. Oh, yes, it's mercy. From your standpoint, to spend the rest of your life chasing the illusionary lie of the devil. From God's standpoint, multiplying your sins over and over for the rest of your life, death is far more merciful. But to be left thinking that contemporary worship is the worship of God and wasting your life pursuing another Jesus, and you don't even know it's another Jesus, that's a horrible judgment. And I hope that you'll remember that when you think about God's judgment. It's one of the worst judgments that God can give a man is to blind him so that he thinks he's following the truth, but he's following a lie. Look at Isaiah 29. Isaiah chapter 29. Now I just quoted to you from John 12, from Isaiah 6. And I've said that again now, but now let's go to Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29. These passages 
could be multiplied from, for hours. This is not some minor thing that God does. This is not some rare judgment of God. This is a common judgment. If you want to know how many verses there are, it's not exhaustive, but it's pushing on it. Find the document on our website called, Is God the Author of Confusion? And it has been converted to HTML with all the verses in hot links so that you can just slide your cursor over them and up's going to pop a a box with the verse in it. Take a peek at it. Be not high-minded, but fear is what Romans 11 should be saying to us right now. We should work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. While we are sojourning in this world, we should sojourn in fear. God can just put blinders over your eyes that you cannot see and you don't even know what you don't see because what you thought you had has disappeared. And listen, if you embrace truth and love it, God will just open more to you. And the Lord has opened a great deal to us. As simple as simple as that point on Wednesday evening about instrumental music in the church, I thank God and I have rejoiced before I was here with you and I have rejoiced after I was here with you. I have increased the number of slides 50% on that presentation. I am so thankful growing up till the age of 20, I had never even heard that there was anybody on earth that sang a cappella. I played my saxophone in church. And if efforts could have, if goals could have been accomplished in my wayward life, I'd have played the piano. My brother and I were not good students. But the efforts were made, and the efforts were made in all ignorance, with great zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ. Never heard of a cappella singing. Never imagined that there was a church without a piano and organ. Of course the piano goes on the left and the organ goes on the right. Don't you know that? As Brother Newell would say, that's in the book of Second Thoughts. I have a whole bunch of slides added about conditioning. When you come into the world this big, well, hopefully you're this big when you're born, but when you come into the world and you go to church for the first time and the piano's on the left and the organ's on the right, and it's your mommy that's playing the piano and the organ, or, or it's not your mommy, it's your aunt. And you see it every day. When you go visit other churches, you go visit other churches of like precious faith, or let's just say like faith. There's a piano on the left and an organ on the right, and of course there's the two flags that are there, so you just know it's the way it's got to be. It's God's way. Because you've never seen anything else. It's called conditioning. When you grew up to be a Mormon, you believe that Mormonism is the truth. That's right. When you grew up as a little Buddhist, you grew up to become a big Buddhist. Right. It's, it's conditioning. Are you thankful for truth? Amen. I don't want to listen. I don't need to preach that sermon again right now, but are you thankful for truth? I never heard of it, never imagined it. You know, they love Charles Spurgeon. He's the prince of pulpiteers, the greatest Baptist preacher ever. 20,000 in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England. I've told you that a number of times. They love Charles Spurgeon because all of his sermons were published. He was so popular and famous that there were stenographers in the assembly that would write down every word that he said. The next day it would be in the London papers, his sermons. They've all been collected, thousands of them, all collected and put in volumes from here to that wall. 
And you can have every sermon that Spurgeon preached, and the Baptists loved Charles Spurgeon, but Charles Spurgeon would never have let a musical instrument into his church. And as soon as he could get out of that pulpit, he would light up the finest cigar that could be bought in London and go home and have his glass of wine. Now, what's happened to conditioning? See, you get conditioned that when you go into the church and there's a piano on your left hand and an organ on your right, that's the way it's supposed to be. And when you go home, you drink milk, fruit, juice, or water. And you wouldn't ever put nicotine in the same building with you. It's, it's just conditioning. And you know, to ever be jarred, to be ever be jarred out of that with the precious word of God is a blessing. And I'm off the subject a little bit, but I just want to talk about truth. Why can you see something that you never even imagined in your wildest imagination? By God's grace. God's grace and mercy. And it applies to so many different things, whether it be limited atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ or regeneration before faith, or who is Elijah the prophet in Malachi 4, 5, and 6? All, do you know all these little things, as soon as you pick just two or three of these, we are in a minority that is so small, it's very small, by God's grace. It's all by God's grace. Now, if we start fighting or balking against some part of this truth that he's given us, like that God hates divorce, and we start playing around and divorcing each other like so many churches do, well, God's just going to blind us, and we'll end up with a piano, and we'll be forbidding wine, and everything will be messed up, and we'll have regeneration on the other side of faith because God will judge us. Right. I just want to know, you know, where is your weak spot? Because if you play around with that weak spot, okay, you want me to use a Bible term. It's an idol in your heart, right. and it can be a child. It can be a marriage. It can be pornography. What is your idol in your heart? You know where I'm going, don't you? If you read the chapters last evening. But let me read Isaiah 29 to you. Isaiah chapter 29, beginning at verse 9. Stay yourselves and wonder. And I'm, the Lord is speaking through me to you. Stay yourselves, hold, hold on and wonder. Cry ye out and cry. Look at this phenomenon that's happening. They are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep and hath closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, the seers, another word for prophet, hath he covered. And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. What that means is, you're between a rock and a hard place and there is no solution because God has made a choice that you are not going to see the truth. That's what Paul's dealing with in Romans chapter 10. It's staggering him that the church of God's elect among Israel were blind. Who hath believed our report? It bothered Isaiah, it bothered the apostle. Look at Ezekiel 14 with me. Ezekiel 14. This was part of the suggested reading for last night. Of course, it's only suggested because your pastor's a big pushover. 
Of course, when he suggests it, that means you don't really have to read it. You can watch television instead, and it's just as good. Just remember that you've neglected the Word of God. I wouldn't have picked a chapter for you if I thought it was a waste of your time. But if you neglect reading it, just remember that you're neglecting a message that's of incredible value, sent from the highest office and being in the universe to you the lowest. And there is great combined weight of responsibility on you and on me to read and care about these things. Of course, I only suggest it. It's amazing for a dictator, a manipulative, overbearing oppressor would only suggest passages. Verse 6 of Ezekiel. Look at verse 1. Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of it all by them? What is the answer to that question? No way am I going to be inquired of by men who come to me with an idol in their heart and a stumbling block that they've already set up. Well, I'm not going to do it the way that it's preached in our church. I'm not going to do it the way... that That's just a misinterpretation of the Bible. I am not going to follow that emphasis. I'm going to do things my way. Do it your way. Amen. I'm going to laugh with the Lord. Amen. I'm not quite like Moses. I'm more like... Ezekiel and Jeremiah and John. What are you doing here at the River Jordan? Now Moses wouldn't have said that. But John would. And I will. And I'm nothing. But I'm scared. For all of us. I love truth. And to think of preaching and believing and practicing a lie... An untimely death would be a far better thing. Ezekiel 14.6 Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, Repent and turn yourselves from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For every one of the house of Israel, this is the church of God, I hope you'll remember, or of the stranger that sojourneth in Israel, those are Gentiles that were converted, which separateth himself from me. When you depart from the word of the living God, and when you depart from God because you have set something else up as being more important in your life, he separateth himself from me and setteth up his idols in his heart and putteth a stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and cometh to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me. I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. And I will set my face against that man and will make him a sign and proverb and I will cut him off from the midst of my people and ye shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet be deceived when he hath spoken a thing, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet and I will stretch out my hand upon him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And they shall bear the punishment of their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be even as the punishment of him that seeketh unto him." That Israel might go no more a-whoring, but that they might know that I am the Lord, their God. Uh, These things aren't preached anywhere. Look at Ezekiel chapter 20. Oh yes, there are a few exceptions to what I just said. That is the general rule that they are not preached anywhere. 99.99% of churches do not preach these passages ever. They don't even understand them. They don't even know they're in the Bible. They don't even know this kind of a God is in the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 20. 
And it came, verse 1, it came to pass in the seventh year, in the fifth month, the tenth day of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. Then came the word of the Lord unto me, saying, Son of man, speak unto the elders of Israel and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Are ye come to inquire of me? As I live, saith the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Does that answer the question from chapter 14? I will not be. Now, I want to show you how bad it can get. Did you know that you are capable of any sin? And you are capable of any sin before the sun sets if God doesn't have mercy upon you? Think of the worst sin that you can think of, and I know what you're thinking of, most likely. Could you do it? Oh, yes, you could do it. Would an intelligent military commander that has had ten plagues in the nation of Israel wipe him out, take his chariot down into the Red Sea with water stacked up on both sides? How is that possible? Oh, watch. You're going to find this hard to believe. This is in the Bible. It has been taught before. We're still in Ezekiel 20. When elders of Israel come and say, we want to inquire of the Lord, what does God give them? He gives them child sacrifice. Our God gives His church the idea and the commandments for child sacrifice to make them desolate at their own hands. The hands of parents killing their own children. Verse 25. You can see that in verse 24 there's a because. Ezekiel 20, chapter 20 and verse 24. Because. See, the because is there telling you, why did God do this? He doesn't do this because He's cruel. He does this because He's just. He does this because He's holy. He does this because they deserve it. Because they did the wicked things that are in the context leading up to this verse. Verse 25, wherefore, because of the because, wherefore, I gave them also statutes that were not good. I gave them a religion and rules of religion that were not good and judgments whereby they should not live. And I polluted them in their own gifts in that they caused to pass through the fire all that openeth the womb that I might make them desolate to the end that they might know that I am the Lord. Meditate on that for a while. He turned them over to where they thought the religious rules of the Canaanites made perfectly good sense. That to show God how much I love Him, I'll kill my children so that He could make them desolate. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Turn to Amos chapter 8. Amos chapter 8. Do you know that we live in the perilous times of the last days? Do you know that's the most important prophecy for you in the Bible? Telling us what it would be like and what Christians would be like in the generation that we live in? Does it say evil seducers shall wax worse and worse? Deceived? Deceiving and being deceived. Did we read last Lord's Day as I finished my morning sermon about those that didn't receive the love of the truth being sent strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned? Is that in the Bible? Is that in the New Testament? Is that a possibility? Is statistically the likelihood of you believing the truth greater or less than the likelihood of you believing that damnable lie of Roman Catholicism? Less. Is it even close? Not even close statistically. 
Amos chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. In that day shall the fair virgins and young men faint for thirst. And it's not water, and it's not bread that's lacking. It is the word of God and preaching of it. How many times do I have to hear, Is there a church like yours in my city? Is there a church like yours in my nation? People have to go to the internet to try to find truth. They have to type into a Google search box, Easter truth, because there's hardly any pastors left that will preach Easter truth. Easter timeline, because there's hardly anybody left that will preach an Easter timeline. And on and on it goes. They can't get a plain explanation of Proverbs. Proverbs is such a wonderfully plain book. Much more could be said, my dear brethren. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn their ears away from the truth and be turned unto fables. And we are living in that time. And so God is blinding men. The truth is just disappearing from the earth. The, the, the prophetic truth that our fathers believed for 1,500 years about the Pope of Rome, and do you know how they sealed their confidence that the Pope of Rome was the Antichrist? Do you know how they sealed it? They didn't seal it by paying $5.50 for a ticket to left behind. How'd they seal it? Blood. They would gladly lay down their lives because they knew that they were the martyrs that were described in the book of Revelation. How many of those are left? There's hardly anybody left. You know that red hymnal that is sitting on your pews, the Trinity hymnal from the Presbyterian Church? If you go to uh, chapter 22, I believe it is, where it deals with the church. You know, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith since 1647 until the early 1900s said that the, the Pope is the man of sin and the Antichrist, the son of perdition. But uh, that's just not very politically correct, especially if you'd like to start taking walks holding hands with a Catholic priest, which the Presbyterians have done. Truth, truth is just disappearing and I need to get back to Romans chapter 10. Please turn with me back to Romans 10. But you know what? I want you to remember. Take heed therefore how ye hear. Romans chapter 10. Verse 18 tells us that the gospel had gone into all the earth. The Jews had heard the gospel, but they hadn't believed it. Something profound was going on, and that is they were being blinded to it. Verse 19, but I say, this is the Apostle Paul, but I say, did not Israel know? Didn't Israel know that there were warnings of this going to happen and so they would have been on their guard not to let it happen? Did not Israel know? First Moses saith, okay, holding your hand there, it's Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32 is a song that Moses composed before he died. This is not the song sung on the shore of the Red Sea. This is another song in which he swore that nation to obedience and what would happen to them if they disobeyed. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 35 is that text used by Jonathan Edwards for his sermon sinners in the hands of an angry God because there is some anger described in Deuteronomy 32 if his church were to disobey him. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 21. They have moved me to jealousy. Well, let's go back up. 
Oh, let's start at verse 15. I'm sorry. I wanted you to hear the context. Jeshurun is a nickname for Israel. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 32. This is in the middle of a song. It's a sweet song. But Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked. That's Israel. He blessed them with prosperity. So what did they do? They kicked at him. His sacrifices didn't mean much. We have been blessed with prosperity greater than Israel ever had. Are you kicking at any of the things of God? And they're not as important to you as they should be. But Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked. Thou art waxen fat. Thou art grown thick. Thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God, which made him, and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations provoked they him to anger. They sacrificed unto devils, not to God. To gods whom they knew not. To new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. Of the rock that begat thee, thou art unmindful, and hast forgotten God that formed thee. And when the Lord sought, he abhorred them, because of the provoking of his sons and of his daughters, his church, his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them, I will see what their end shall be, for they are a very froward generation, children in whom is no faith. No faith. They didn't believe. Now the verse that we need the most, verse 21, They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities, and I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Israel, the church, provoked the God of heaven to jealousy because they turned their worship over to other gods and new gods and new ways of worshiping God and abominations. And they were not mindful of the God that had formed them, blessed them, and fattened them and made them a great nation on earth. And so because they made God jealous, he said, I'm going to make you jealous. I'm going to take my blessing. I'm going to take my gospel away from you and give it to the Gentiles. Those people that you despise, those people that you think you are better than, I'm going to give it to them and leave you without it. And so we have Romans 10 and verse 19. But I say, did not Israel know? Hadn't the Jews ever read the warnings that if they ever let go of their faith and did not hold on to the Lord Jehovah and believing on Him, God would take the gospel from them and give it to the Gentiles. First, he's going to quote two prophets. Moses in verse 19, Isaiah in verses 20 and 21. First, Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. He didn't use the word, you know, the word that you can't use when you're talking to the Jews. What? Gentiles. He just said what they understood as Gentiles, but it just wasn't quite so much in the face. I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. And he didn't tell them how he was going to do it. So Moses is a little obscure, but that's from Deuteronomy 32, 21. A nice song. A nice song. It's the kind of songs churches should sing. Right. You know, when we talk about what we owe the Lord for all that He's done for us. And that's what Moses did. Then Moses went and died. And the Lord buried him. And he went to heaven. He came back down to the Mount of Transfiguration as we heard in the back room for prayer this morning. So there is uh, Romans chapter 10 and verse 19. Israel should have been on guard for the gospel with the prophecies that had been given by Moses about God blinding them. 
God foretold the Gentiles would be converted in this passage so we can understand it perfectly. We know how Paul's using it. We've got the spectacles of the New Testament on. We can now read Deuteronomy 32 in those verses. We can read Romans 10, 20, and verse, I mean, verse 19, and we know what Paul's talking about. It's Gentiles. It's the gospel. As it's described in the last four verses of Romans chapter 9, the Gentiles are believing it fast, and the Jews are not. What's happened? The prophecy of Moses is being fulfilled 1,500 years later. Because they didn't have faith in him, he purposed to leave them and to save Gentiles by faith. Because they made him jealous with their idols, he was going to make them jealous with a people that they didn't consider worthy of them. What perfect justice. This is our God. It's perfect. Did it work? Did the jealousy thing work a little bit? What will Paul reason in Romans chapter 11? He says, I'm going to do anything I can if by any means I might provoke to emulation those that are my flesh. What is emulation? Jealousy, the desire to compete with someone else. He is going to provoke the Jews and see if he might save some of the elect Israelites because God held out a little bit of hope that there would be some exceptions pulled out of that blinded bunch And Paul said, I'm going to use this jealousy issue to see if I can get them to believe. And it's going to be in Romans chapter 11, just that way. Romans 10, 19. Wow. Did it work? In Acts chapter 13, when Paul preached in Antioch of Pisidia, and it says he left, and there were many Greek Gentile proselytes that walked out with him. And the next Sabbath day, almost the whole city was gathered together. I'm not turning you there to save time. Do you remember? Mm -hmm. Almost the whole city... It says the Jews were moved with, four-letter word, envy. A monotheistic God named Jehovah being presented to Gentiles with a Messiah that had come and paid for their sins, fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures, the Gentiles, almost the whole city came together to hear it. And what did the Jews do? Did they join in the celebration? No, they were moved with envy. That's not the only time. You know when he was on trial and he preached a sermon that they were all shouting amen to when he got to the word Gentiles, they tried to kill him. Okay, Romans chapter... Brethren, are you thankful for truth? Amen. By a foolish nation I will anger you. Look what we have. Do we know about the one God of the universe that was revealed only to the Jews, Jehovah? Do we know Him? Do we know His Son? Right. Do we know the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the one that would come? We are so blessed abundantly. We are the foolish nation that He's made wise. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Amen. Do you believe all those six points in 1 Timothy 3.16? God was manifest in the flesh. Justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on the world, received up into glory. Why do you believe those things? You foolish Gentiles. By God's grace. By God's grace. Don't be high-minded about what He did to the Jews. Because if He cut off the natural branches, how much easier would it be for Him to cut off wild branches that have been grafted in? Verse 20, but Isaiah is very bold. Now Moses 
introduce the idea, Isaiah is very bold. And this is from Isaiah 65, the first two verses. I was found of them that sought me not. The Gentiles weren't even looking for a relationship with the Lord Jehovah. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. They were not seeking. And God came and turned their hearts to him and opened up their hearts and filled them with the fear of the Lord and regenerated them by his almighty power so that we had Cornelius's praying to God always. And when Cornelius heard about the Lord Jesus Christ from the mouth of Peter, was there any resistance at all? Or did Peter just, was Peter staggered and said, what hinders these men from being baptized? Well, God helped him out a little bit by doing what? Pouring out the gift of the Holy Ghost from the day of Pentecost on Gentiles just to get him over the, the speed bump to baptize them. Where did that man come from? How long did it take Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things that were spoken of Paul? Right. When Paul preached around Jews, what, their hearts were closed up. They'd stop up their ears. They didn't even want to hear the words. Could you ever get that bad? Are there those that have grown up in churches like ours that go off and become atheists against the God of heaven? While they're doing it, do they think that they're absolutely safe? They may very well indeed. Why? Because God has blinded them. Where are you being tried by the word of God that you are not hearing it and heeding it today? Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. Verse 19 only said, I'm going to provoke you. Verse 20 says, I am going to enter into a personal relationship with other nations and leave you. That was mind-blowing. Mind-blowing to a Jew. Can you understand that, why it says Isaiah was very bold? Yep. To, for, because Isaiah used words that actually describe, they, had, they were the only ones that had a relationship with Jehovah. It was an exclusive relationship. Jehovah, Israel, period. Now Jehovah's going to back off from them, and he's going to turn to these other nations and enter into a relationship with them, even though they weren't seeking him. He's going to be the one, he's going to be the one that does all the initiating. They're not offering any sacrifices, they have no priesthood, they have nothing. But he is going to go reveal himself to them and call them out. Do you understand why it says very bold? Right. Amen. Tradition tells us how Isaiah died. Do any of you know how he died? It's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 toward the end of the chapter. I'll give you a hint. This, this might be a motion that helps. Now, he was sawn asunder. He was cut in pieces by a wood saw. Now, whether that's true or not about Isaiah, we don't know, but we do know that Hebrews 11 is in the Bible, and it says, they were sawn asunder. Do you know how much the Jews would have enjoyed this message from the prophet Isaiah? When, when Paul himself would say with the Holy Spirit, Isaiah is very bold. I was found of them that sought me not. You know, the truth be told, it's true of all of us. He came for us. He came for us when we weren't seeking we weren't asking. Right. And he came and forced himself upon us. Amen. Oh, thank you, Lord. Yes. Oh, Dad, I don't have any need of that where I'm going. Oh, he forced himself on me. 
Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found. Have you found the Lord? Do you know what a miracle of grace that is? That you found the Lord. You weren't seeking Him. He forced Himself on you. I was made manifest. He revealed Himself, not at a burning bush, not on Mount Sinai, in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. They crucified Him. We love Him. We love Him. What made the difference? God's divine justice in taking the gospel. And do you know how He got it to us? By getting those chosen men to get frustrated with their own nation to where they would say, you're judging yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Lo, we turn to the church of Greenville. I hope that it's that connected in your minds. You'd have never heard it. You would have never heard it. We'd be painting a totem pole this morning. Verse 21, but to Israel, this is Isaiah 65, verse 2. Verses 20 and 21 are Isaiah 65, the first two verses. But to Israel he saith, look at this contrast. All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. They were the ones that had the prophets, had the priests, had the temple, had the altar, had the word of God. I have opened, come here, give me an audience. It's the Lord addressing them. And they would not. And not only would they not believe, they were disobedient and a gainsaying people. Gainsaying. They would actually say things against God and against His Son. For instance, I'm going back there for the third time. We're in Antioch of Pisidia, across the Mediterranean. The whole city has come together. The Jews are moved with envy. And what does it say they did? And contradicted and blasphemed. They contradicted and blasphemed as the Apostle Paul was opening up the Scriptures and explaining their fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. They contradicted and blaspheming a disobedient and gainsaying people. They weren't just lacking in faith. They were filled with venom against the Gospel. And so there's God to Israel all day long. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to the people. And they would reject them and stone them and kill them. Remember? The parables of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would send His servants. They'd kill Him. They'd kill Him. He'd say, I'll send My Son. Maybe they'll honor Him. And they killed Him. But the Gentiles? How'd that Ethiopian eunuch leave the, leave the oasis to head on to report back to Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians? Rejoicing. Rejoicing. What did the Philippian jailer do with all his house in his house. Believing with all his house, was he sad? Was he rejoicing in Acts chapter 16? How did all that happen? God took the great gift of truth and wisdom and the gospel, the glad tidings of good things, and shifted it over. And part of this process was a blinding, a mysterious blinding of some elect Israelites, not Paul, not others. There were thousands that believed so that the gospel would come to us. And we'll get into more of that in Romans chapter 11. I have to, you know, I have to ask you. Take heed therefore how ye hear. Right. It is, is, is what I've just read to you in Ezekiel 14 and Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 29, Ezekiel 20, is that 
only about the Jews or can it happen to us? Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. That's why I started out with that this morning. And be not high-minded, but fear, because if God cut off the natural branches, he can certainly cut you off. And I would, I would remind you that in 2 Thessalonians 2, where it says, Therefore God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned. Who... You know what it says? What's the because therefore? Because. There's a because there. Because they received not the love of the truth. What truth do you not love? What truth do you not love? There had better be none. If there's truth that you do not love, the Lord is going to slide blinders over you in proportion to the truth that you do not love, and you will end up deluded. You will not know it. Will know it. He already knows it. You will not know it. So let's work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Let's bless the God of heaven who has saved us and sent his gospel to us, dumb Gentiles, foolish nation, people that were not really a people, in the opinion of the Israelites. Look what he's done for us. Right. We have so much to be thankful for. We have so much praise and thanksgiving to give him. Amen. This is just dealing with the gospel. Let alone, he saved us first. Because in order for us to have believed the truth, we had to be sanctified by the Spirit first. Mm -hmm. And how are we sanctified by the Spirit? Because He chose us to salvation from the beginning. This is all in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Take heed therefore how ye hear. The Lord says, I want more. I don't want to lose any. Are you with me? Amen. He's righteous in all His ways. I'm thankful for what he's done here. The apostle, when he gets to the end of the full explanation, do you know what he's going to say? It's got an exclamation point, so if my voice sounds like it's got an exclamation point, understand. Amen. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! Exclamation point. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out! Exclamation point. Amen and amen. His ways past finding out. He leaves one church because they were so disobedient. And he moves to a Gentile church. Praise his name here in the Piedmont of the Carolinas. Amen. Amen.